Welcome to the sermon podcast of Grace Presbyterian Church. For more information about our church, please visit our website, gracechurchlaunceston.com. Well, friends, uh, it is from that singular account of the sinful woman forgiven in Luke 7, 36 to 50 that we're going to consider this afternoon. It's an interesting account indeed, and it's uh, funny because it's not to be found in any of the other gospel accounts. So if you search through uh, Matthew, Mark and John, you won't find this. There is another lady who anoints Jesus, but that's in John 12, and that's a different lady for a different occasion. It is about a sinful woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears and then dries those same feet with her hair. And in declaring her forgiven, Jesus uses a parable to explain what is happening. Now, we're going to focus on just two main points that arise from this passage. The first idea we're going to consider is the contrast between being merely religious and having true faith, all right? The difference between being merely religious and having true faith. And the second point that we're going to consider is that forgiveness is from the Lord. Okay, so just a two-point sermon. So let's look at our first idea, friends, which is religiosity versus true faith. So this first point uh, is to see that contrast between being merely religious versus having true faith. The contrast or the distinction or the difference between a person who is purely religious in their practice and the person who has true faith in the Lord. In order to do this, let's follow the story as it unfolds in Luke 7. Jesus is visiting the house of one Simon the Pharisee. Now, this Simon is not the same, so uh, young people, don't confuse this Simon for Simon Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples. They're two different guys. Simon was actually a pretty common name in the Jewish world back then. Now, Jesus had by this time stirred up quite a lot of attention and large crowds of people were following him wherever he went. So it only made sense that Simon, as a prominent religious teacher, would want Jesus to come and eat in his own home. Maybe it was to show off that he knew the new and latest celebrity preacher. Maybe he was actually just interested to find out who this character Jesus was. Jesus accepts the offer and he sits at the table. There at the end of verse 36, if you follow along in your Bibles, it will help. It says that he reclined at the table. Now, this is helpful to understand how someone coming into the room would actually physically approach Jesus. The way men used to sit at dinner back then is there would be a central table in a, in a room, a low-lying table, and the fellows would, would lay down and prop themselves up on the table with their left elbow, so their right hand, which was the eating hand, uh, would be free for grabbing items of food, dipping it in, in uh, soups and whatnot. Uh, and they're, 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 because there was a central table in the room, their feet would point outwards from the table to the, you know, the doorways and the walls. Okay? So we're introduced in verse 37 then to, it says, a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. And friends, in the context of this passage and in the time in which it is set, there's really only one line of work that this woman would have been engaged in, isn't there? It's what I like to call the professional breaking of the commandment against adultery. Well, we've got young ears here, but we know she was an immoral woman, okay? And what does this sinner of a woman do? Well, she was carrying what our translation calls an alabaster jar 
of perfume. Now, the actual physical object that she would have had would be almost definitely like the one that most Jewish women would carry at the time, or many Jewish women. It's probably a small vial or a flask made of alabaster. And guys, alabaster, you know what plaster, you know how they have cups and bottles made of plaster? You know what gypsum is? It's, it's, it's kind of hard, but it cracks pretty easily, actually. Yeah, it would have been a little jar or a little bottle made of that. And it was often worn on a cord around the neck. And it contained, of course, a perfume or a fragrant ointment. And verse 38 says this. It says, And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, I explained just a moment ago how Jesus would have been sitting at the table. And the woman stands behind and obviously out to the side somewhat so that she's at his feet. Now, keep in mind that the roads were dusty in Palestine at the time and people did not get around in fancy shoes like they do now. You know, you didn't have a walking pair and a jogging pair and a pair for work and a pair for church. You know, they just had either sandals or nothing, barefoot. And we find out later in the passage, of course, that no one has washed Jesus' feet. So it's safe to say that the situation facing this lady is not entirely glamorous. Jesus was fully man, wasn't he? So we're talking about feet that were perhaps smelly, but certainly dusty and dirty. And she wets his feet with her tears. The word in the original is that she bedewed his feet, like dew on the grass, guys. Remember dew on the grass, wet in the morning? She bedewed his feet. There must have been enough tears to actually make his feet wet. I mean, she was certainly not squeezing the tears out for effect, was she? They were flowing spontaneously. She couldn't help it. Here was the overflow of her very heart. The original language conveys the idea that the woman then hurried to wipe those tears away from Jesus' feet. What does she use? Does she grab a, a towel? Does she grab a, you know, a, a handy wipe? No. She uses her hair. Now, for a Jewish woman in those times to uncover her hair in public was to bring disgrace upon herself. And it perhaps gives credence to that idea about what line of work she was in for her to be willing to uncover her hair at all. But she's acting in haste, isn't she? Maybe she's worried about upsetting him. Maybe she really doesn't want to defile this special man's feet with her tears, her unclean tears. So why? Why did she do it all? There's only one possibility, friends, as to why she should bid you Jesus' feet with her tears and then dry those same feet with her hair. This woman is overcome. She is overcome with complete humility before Jesus Christ. Abject humility and total servitude. So much is she overcome with the emotional outpouring of her humility that she cries tears aplenty, then she forgets her own dignity and wipes his feet with her hair just there in front of everyone. Then what does she do? Verse 38 goes on to tell us that she kissed his feet. It is as if she's becoming more bold in his presence. And then she takes her, pl her flask of perfume and anoints his feet with it. Now, let us have a little think. So far in our passage, how many words have been exchanged between Jesus and the woman? How many? Zilch, zero, zip, none, right? Not a single word. 
And throughout the whole passage, this lady doesn't speak at all, does she? But what does she have to say? Don't you think this is one of those cases where her actions say everything? She's a woman of the streets, almost definitely uneducated, one of the outcasts of society. She has no theologically polished spiel to broadcast. She certainly doesn't have you know, a formula for a, a so-called sinner's prayer. But she has true faith, and that faith focuses on Jesus Christ. Now, this lady must, of course, have at least heard about Jesus. That's why she's in the room, isn't it? But I think it's likely in the circumstances that she's not only heard about Jesus, but that she's actually heard Jesus, heard him teach, heard him preach. She may even have seen some of his miracles, some of his healings. Either way, this lady just had to come and see him. She had to come and be with him. So she sneaks her way into a dinner party in the home of a prominent religious leader, an important man, and she is driven to approach Christ. She is compelled by her faith to approach Jesus, to be near him. Now, there's every chance, friends, that pretty much every other man who she had contact with saw her merely as an object, an object perhaps of pleasure or an object of disdain and disgust. An easy opportunity maybe for a good time. Yet she comes to Jesus and he's not like all the other men. He doesn't leer at her. He has no lewd or nasty comments to make. He is safe for her to be around. But he is also not in her power. Rather, friends, this woman is on the verge of encountering a power which she had never even thought was possible. Then what happens next in our passage? The owner of the house, the host, Simon the Pharisee, also does not say anything, not out loud, but he certainly speaks to himself, as verse 39 puts it. Or perhaps more accurately, he speaks within himself, as the King James Version puts it. He's looking for evidence by now against Jesus, isn't he? Simon thinks if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Oh, you know, thinks Simon, this bloke Jesus is not at all who he's cracked up to be. Letting a woman like that touch his feet? No way. Interesting, isn't it? I think we need to pause for a moment because I reckon each of us, if we're honest with ourselves, especially if, you know, you're from a nice, comfortable, middle-class background, would find an echo of Simon's thoughts in our own minds. You see, that's the reason, one of the reasons behind gossiping and bad-mouthing other people. In thinking or saying how bad or how immoral or how foolish or dirty or sinful someone else is, we're reassuring ourselves that we are good, moral, wise, clean and upright. So in that vein, Jesus introduces a parable into the situation. And a very brief parable it is. Some of you might be wishing in about 20 minutes' time that my sermon were as brief as this parable. But here it is, friends, in verses 41 and 42 of our passage. Jesus says this, Two men owed money <clears throat> to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, just to explain, a denarius was about a day's wage. So all our young people here, for when mum or dad goes to work, however much money they earn in that day, and don't tell me if you know, but 
that's how much a denarius was worth, okay? So you can imagine, can't you, if someone owed 50 denarii, that, I mean, it's a lot, but you could probably pay it back, maybe, you know, with a payment plan, I don't know, but maybe you could have a chance. But 500 denarii, you've got no chance in the, in the ancient world of paying it back. That's an unpayable debt for this person. Verse 42, neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Then Simon gives him his answer. And I like to speculate as to what Simon's tone was here. Was it an answer breathed out with a frustrated, condescending sigh like certain teenagers might give? Or was he pleased with himself for having answered the question correctly? Verse 43, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. I mean, Simon's answer is not surprising, is it? That's what we call a no-brainer. It's a very easy question. Of course, the person with the greater debt forgiven would be the one who would love more. Maybe by this point in the evening, Simon's thinking that the pearls of wisdom he had hoped to glean from this new exciting teacher were not going to be offered that evening. Or perhaps that Jesus was a bit of a one-trick pony, didn't have any profound wisdom to offer. Maybe he thought Jesus was disappointingly shallow by this time. But Jesus has, in fact, with very few words in a brief parable, put Simon into a corner from which he cannot escape. And the sad part of it is that as far as we know, as straightforward and simple as Jesus' story is, and as simple as the answer to the question posed, Simon the Pharisee does not understand that the parable serves as a condemnation of him. Our Lord goes on then to contrast the woman's devotion and the obvious love that she has with Simon's own lack of even common customary courtesy in verses 44 to 46. No water for feet washing from Simon is contrasted with the woman's tears and her wiping them with her hair. No kiss hello from Simon. These are just things that a host would do and he didn't do any of it. Yet the woman has kissed Jesus' feet continually. No ointment for Jesus' head from Simon, but that woman has perfumed even his feet. And then in verse 47 comes the clincher. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. <clears throat> what Jesus is doing here is both stating a broad principle and at the same time speaking directly to Simon the Pharisee. Simon is a religious man, a man of knowledge, a man of standing in Jewish society, or the church, as it was at the time. The sinful woman, we never even learn her name, do we? Is not religious. She would have never been welcome in the temple or the synagogue. She was likely to not have any great uh, knowledge or wisdom, but rather was an outcast from God's people, a person of no standing in Jewish society. Put in business terms, this woman brought nothing to the deal. She has nothing good in herself to offer. The Pharisee, however, brought his own righteousness. She brought no righteousness of her own, and effectively, Jesus is saying that if Simon the Pharisee wants to keep his own righteousness, then he'll find no forgiveness from the Lord. The parable only takes the conclusion of the debtor with a smaller debt so far. 
But in the real world, it is the sinful woman whose sins are forgiven, whereas Simon is not offered forgiveness. So the woman, Christ sees that her heart is laid bare before him, and she is truly one of the poor in spirit, and one who is truly humble, and her acts of devotion show how great the love she has for the one in whom she finds forgiveness. Jesus said earlier in Luke 5 that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here we have it being played out in this scene. This parable and the forgiveness of the woman is surprising to everyone around them. But it fits perfectly, if you know this part of Luke, it fits perfectly what, with what Jesus has been doing. Chapter 4, he heals uh, the demon, he shows love to the demon-possessed person. To lepers in Luke 5. Luke 6, the man with the withered hand. And the woman, woman in Luke 7 has tears from her guilt before the Holy One of Israel. She has tears because she is undone before the perfect Lord. Her tears have not been drummed up, have not been manufactured by you know, any special thing or special mood music or anything like that. No manipulation. And those tears form the evidence of her saving faith. And she's crying because she's come to seek a certain person and has found that person. And she's bowled over by who he is and the realisation of who she is as she stands before him. Her faith is in one person, and it is the right person. Therein lay the difference between Simon the Pharisee and this sinful woman. His faith is in his system of works, and in morality, and ultimately in himself. Her faith is in the person who she came into the room seeking. He looks within himself for righteousness. She looks outside herself for righteousness. The Pharisee here, Simon, he knows every word of the law. I reckon he could give your pastor a run for his money, chapter and verse, couldn't he? He would know the law backwards, wouldn't he? But he cannot even imagine that the author and soon-to-be fulfiller of that same law is sitting in his own dining room. The sinful woman may not know the law in great detail, but she certainly knows that she has broken God's law and that the only person who can forgive her unpayable debt is the one at whose feet she stands. And her emotions overflow to copious tears on that person's feet. And from now on in the sermon, I'm not going to call her that sinful woman because now she is to be known as the woman who goes in peace. And friends, so is the case today. An encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ rendered this woman in Luke 7 completely undone. She unraveled before him. And so should we be undone before him, at least when we first encounter him. Now, this is not to dictate, I've got to be careful here, I'm not going to dictate that we all have some level of emotional response, okay? And so if you're new here or if you're still getting used to what church is all about, don't think that I'm telling you that you have to cry enough to wet a guy's feet, you know, to a certain point. It's not about that, okay? But when we say we have come to Jesus, but our experience is the same as when we've met, you know, some local celebrity or when we've met, you know, another religion's leader, then we need to hold that up against what we read about in Luke 7 with this woman. 
That's why I ask that our first reading today be from Psalm 6. Now, there's no direct connection between, between Psalm 6 and the passage we're considering in Luke 7. It's the, the circumstances of David were very different when he wrote these words. But the weeping over sin, and the weeping over the knowledge of sin and feeling the urgent nature of needing to come to the Lord's mercy. It's echoed here, isn't it? So what we read in Psalm 6 is echoed with this woman in Luke 7. You see, all too often people say that they've met Jesus and they feel confirmed or they feel themselves elevated or they feel themselves validated within themselves. And they can be very good things, don't get me wrong. But this woman in Luke 7 met Jesus and she fell apart. She was exposed. She was overwhelmed with the conviction of her own guilt before the Holy One of Israel. She didn't get a warm, fuzzy feeling, did she? Rather, she was laid bare, spiritually speaking, and her conscience boiled over to the point of tears of repentance. She felt no elevation of herself, and she did, but she felt abasement. And she did the only thing she could possibly do. She clung to the Lord Jesus for mercy. Contrast that with Simon the Pharisee, self-righteous, comfortable in his position, not recognising the searing holiness and sin-exposing purity of his house guest. And I'm convinced, friends, that the question is begged. Are you a Simon the Pharisee? I ask this of myself, don't worry, I'm not thundering from the heights here. Questions for all of us, me included. Are you counting on your own righteousness to be right with God? Do you look scornfully, this is a challenge for those who have sat in church for a while, do you look scornfully down on others who are receiving forgiveness, not realising that you are scorning the very Lord who is the one who forgives? Or do you find echoes of this woman within yourself? See, there's a fascinating interplay between faith and emotion in this lady and what she does. She is humble, she's overwhelmed with a sense of her own guilt and she cries copious tears and she forgets her own dignity. She is one of the sinners whom Christ called unto repentance. And again, you're not being asked about whether you cried over your sin when you became a Christian. And no one is asking you, no one's asking you how low you got emotionally before you believed. But you are being asked here whether you have become aware of your own sinfulness before the perfect Son of God who came to save sinners such as you and me. And just as this woman shows that she loved much, the question is also to be asked, does your life now reflect the same? Are you devoted to Jesus Christ, forgetting the disapproval of others, not counting or not minding rather the cost to yourself, loving with your whole self the one who forgave your massive and unpayable debt of sins. Well, our second point is simply called forgiveness is from the Lord. Excuse me. <clears throat> when Christ says to the woman in verse 48, your sins are forgiven, it evokes a response in the other people sitting around the table. Verse 49 tells us, a little bit like Simon just before, that they say it among themselves. There's an awful lot of unspoken words and mumbling in this passage, isn't there? 
who is this who even forgives sins, is what they say. Well, Jesus as Christ is here establishing exactly who he is. You see, it would be easy for us to look at the parable he has told us about the two debtors and you would think that it's a wise little tale with a neatly packaged moral message. But Christ won't let us do that. He applies it to the woman and then decrees directly that her sins are forgiven. Now, we have a tendency, I'm sorry to say, worldly people that we are, to, uh, to, to take the parables of Jesus and to make them into something like fairy tales or nursery stories. This is not to dissuade telling them to our kids, please tell your children, children, learn the parables, they're good for you. But they're not that at all, are they? Jesus is teaching about the very nature of the kingdom of God. This parable is about the nature of the kingdom of God. Luke has told us before this that Jesus was going about from village to village, teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. And here he is doing that right here in Luke 7. And he's saying that the kingdom of God is, that is one whose citizens are forgiven. Forgiven, Jesus is not just telling us a morality tale. And the parable is certainly not some quaint sermon illustration. Jesus is actually bringing about the reality of the kingdom of heaven in telling this parable. I'm going to say that again because it's a really big point. Jesus is actually bringing about the reality of the kingdom of heaven in telling this parable. What, what, what do I mean? He is speaking of the forgiveness of sins to those whose debt to God is so great and who know that it is a debt that can only be paid by being cancelled, by being forgiven totally. And then he takes this reality of forgiveness and he applies it to the woman at his feet. He applies the reality of the forgiveness of sins in the kingdom of God to the woman who has just exposed her heart to him. He takes the truth of the parable and he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Friends, particularly the grown-ups here, do you see how we cheapen the parables when we reduce them to quaint stories and morality plays instead of a revelation? of the realities of the kingdom of heaven. Do you also see how Christ himself will not let us get away with that in this passage because the reality is inextricably linked, not just with the forgiveness, but with the revealing of who he really is. The parable is about forgiveness from a certain moneylender. And the upshot is that a real person has her sins really forgiven by someone who has real power to do so. Elsewhere in the gospel narratives, we find that people around Jesus, they equate his forgiving of you know, other people's sins with him putting himself on par with God. And that's one of the few examples of Jesus' detractors actually getting things right, isn't it? They actually get it right. So in verse 49, they ask, who is this who even forgives sins? And there can be only one answer. The Lord. The Lord himself, Jesus, is here establishing that he is indeed the Lord God. Friends, this is profound. With a parable that occupies only two verses in Luke 7, with a handful of simple words of forgiveness to this woman, Jesus is establishing two things that are central to his mission, to his coming to the world as a man. They are number one, that his mission is primarily concerned with the forgiveness of sins and peace with God, and number two, that he is the Lord God 
who has that power to forgive sins. And the end result for the woman is a happy one indeed. She goes on her way, a forgiven woman of faith in Christ. And it is the exact same situation and story for you and me today, friend. If you are someone who has lived a life of sinfulness and you don't have to be the same you know, sort of thing as this lady in the, in the story here, you might be a nice, respectable citizen of Australia or you might be a wonderful, you know, whatever your job may be or a great parent, whatever you may be, it doesn't matter. But if you have lived for yourself, if you know what it is to betray people, if you have lived as if God's moral law had no bearing on you, then you can stand in this woman's spot, whether you're a woman or a man or a boy or a girl, and know that you are forgiven if you come to Christ who has the power to forgive sins and you are safe with him and will find forgiveness and he will grant you peace and grace. Can you see how here Christ is giving us a glimpse of what was ahead, of the climax of his earthly ministry? You see, he's going about the towns and the countryside, preaching and teaching and performing miracles and healings, casting out demons, and it is all on his way to the cross, all a build-up to the crowning event. All of these things give us a foretaste of the crucifixion of Jesus. You see, at the cross where Jesus died, he shows that he is the Lord who has the power to forgive sins. He's not just saying it. You know, we kind of would be justified in not believing him if he didn't do something about it. When he goes and dies on the cross, he shows that he's the Lord who has the power to forgive sins. And he does this by taking our sins upon himself. He is the creditor, just like the um, certain moneylender in the parable, but he pardons the sins of his debtors by actually having those sins put on his account, by having them written against his name. The parable we've been looking at today introduces us to the reality of forgiveness, but it also sets us up for the full transaction that was to come, whereby that forgiveness was affected. And the forgiveness affected by Christ crucified, by Christ dying, is so complete and so all-encompassing that it applies to the woman who had just anointed Jesus' feet, but the forgiveness springing forth from Christ's crucifixion also applies to us today in this room. He cancelled the debt of our sins, just like the moneylender in the parable. And I pray, and I know that uh, faithful people here pray, that each of us would seek the person of Christ whom this woman in Luke 7 sought. And all that each of us would see the forgiver of sins that the woman saw. And friends, that each of us would know the crucified Christ forgiving our sins, just like the woman whose tears wet the feet of her Saviour. And finally, friends, this is not only a call to the unconverted, that would be a huge mistake. This is a call to each and every Christian believer here to keep continually in our minds the Lord Jesus Christ, to keep the Lord Jesus Christ in our affections, to adore him for who he is, to love Jesus for his place and power as the forgiver of sins, to love Christ as the one who says to us, your faith has saved you. 
go in peace and to always see him as the one at whose feet we are humbled but who offers real forgiveness, real restoration of a right relationship with God, with the Lord of heaven and who speaks tenderly to us that we go in peace, peace with God. Let us pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Saviour Jesus. We thank you for what we read, how this sinful woman had all of her record wiped clean, her debt cancelled, her sins forgiven. Your faith has saved you, said Jesus to her, and we thank you that he bid her go in peace. And we ask, Lord, that each of us here, whether we're woman or man, or boy or girl, no matter how old, would know what it is to have our sins forgiven and to be at peace with God. We pray, Lord, that from there we would live lives that show how great our love is for God because of the huge debt that was forgiven. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.